Hello, welcome to Once More with Commentary, a Buffy and Angel podcast. I'm Allie. <laughs> I'm Jenny. I was trying really hard to be like, Angel. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I nailed the delivery, but that's all right. <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Um, how are you, Jenny? Pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Um, do you ever... <laughs> I guess it doesn't really matter if the answer to this is yes or no, but um, have you ever listened to the NPR Politics podcast? No, but I think you told me that you like it better than the daily. Yes, I do. Well, that might be I how think I've I told you I it. like Up First better, which is also an NPR podcast. Okay, there anyway, was some NPR podcast simil- about news that you were like Up oh, First I- is the news one, and I do like that better. Um, okay. Politics used to be a weekly podcast, but they just turned it into a daily podcast because like politics are a, yeah. a nightmare and a disaster. They like couldn't politics keep up. Are so a daily it's affair. sort of a daily, <laughs> it, it is a daily news program now, but it wasn't always. Um, I only bring it up because I, as I set up my little podcast nook every day or every time we record, I mean, I just sit on the bed now and pile pillows around my microphone and like hope for the best, but I, it cracks me up sometimes because the, you know, politics, People, they sometimes are like in really have to record episodes in really weird places because they're kind of like following campaign trails and they're following like news stories or whatever. And they just every once in a while talk about how like I'm in the back of the room with a towel over my head. (laughs) It just makes me feel better about my podcasting situation. So I don't know what made me think of that specifically today, but. Maybe it that's how we should open up or, all of ours, yeah. where you could be like, I'm on my bed, surrounded by my pillows. I'm like, yeah. I'm sitting at the desk in my room, hoping my makeup <laughs> brushes don't fall over and make noise. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, just crack me up. So even really professional podcasters sometimes, you know, you got to make, make it work. Actually, a friend of mine recently started listening to, um, to our podcast. I think he started from <sighs> the beginning. And mm-hmm. he said the sound quality was really good. <laughs> so oh, not in the beginning. I was a little I mean, surprised it's better to hear now that, than it but I was be, happy to accept the compliment. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks, buddy. I was like, Whoever. I'm so flattered. Thanks. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea if he's still listening, though. So yeah, um, I guess I could follow up on that lead. Be like our precious audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, to those How of are you still listening, though, we do appreciate oh, yeah. it. Of course. Um, I am good. Um, You're I'm on, stuffy. Yeah, it's all right. I'm on. I'm on day three of a five day staycation. Okay. So I'm actually pretty relaxed. Okay. I spent all of yesterday doing absolutely nothing, which was my mm-hmm. plan. So it's going well. Satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as cool as your staycation. I like. I didn't stay in like a hotel somewhere, but like I did mm-hmm. on Friday. Like take Still myself nice. to brunch. So nice. that was exciting. I ate a shocking amount of food. Um, oh, yeah, I saw your picture. Yeah, but in my defense, I walked like two hours there and I walked okay. like three hours after and I knew that was going to be what was happening. So it was like a so. necessary fuel stop. Also, yeah. that place is like so it's in it's like a well-known brunch spot in San Francisco. It's like in a faraway neighborhood from me. It's also tiny. So like I never go because uh-huh. it's like a huge commitment to be like. Let me go across town to wait in line for two hours. It's like not yeah. usually part of my plan. So I was like, well, it's a Friday. I'm by myself. Perfect time to go. And I was a little taken by surprise because I did get seated by right away. So mm-hmm. single diners, you know what's up. Yeah. But like, I also like was a little bit surprised because like their menu is basically just standard diner fare for the most part. Like there's a mm-hmm. few things that are a little bit 
different and I do want to go back and try the interesting looking stuff but like I was I was like I want to try the pancakes they're known for their pancakes and I want eggs and I want like some kind of breakfast meat so by the time I decided on all of that I started looking at the menu and I was like oh well clearly I have to get the like big breakfast because it's Mm two dollars more than just the pancakes so (laughs) it was kind of like a price consideration but then I did end up eating the whole thing and everyone around me ordered the exact same thing so I feel like there was no judgment company yeah I was a little worried I was gonna order it and the server was gonna be like you sure because I saw them like (laughs) plating it up and I was like this is a mountain of food um yeah but no it was it was it was good so day one of staycation was like fantastic. So I'm hoping tomorrow and Tuesday go off well. Although it's a tricky time in San Francisco to be like, I'm going to wander around because it's the, the city at the moment is like full of sailors and tourists because it's uh, fleet week. So okay, like the Blue Angels have been flying overhead for like three days straight. So interesting. it's like all my normal like walking paths are overrun with people. And like, you know, there's also, I think like a Italian heritage festival happening and there's also like a food festival so really I've just been hunkered down (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) like there's too many people (laughs) but anyway um speaking of not too many people let's go to Buffy (laughs) no I don't know about that (laughs) I think that was I was like I don't know how to do this (laughs) I don't know if that worked um but actually it isn't too many people because we only have like a handful of our main cast. Yes, it was and pretty limited. They're each in like a one-on-one situation. Um, so I did want to just briefly mention off the top the scenario for this episode is a little weird. I mean, it's a lot like once more with commentary where the episode unlike, once more uh, you did it. You did it. Oh my it. god, I did it! I did. <laughs> I'm officially incepted. Sorry, um, and did we even say the episode that we're talking about? I was gonna. I, I was gonna. I was getting there. So. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, much like, excuse me, once more with feeling, yeah. <laughs> um, this episode, Conversations with Dead People, mm-hmm. does have a title card. So yeah, that's not like a typical thing. And it has kind of a very cinematic type opening. So mm-hmm. it's kind of clear this episode is meant to be like a one-off kind of experimental or like something special. Um, mm-hmm. And in my Buffy box set, this is the episode that from season seven that was listed as one of Joss Whedon's top ten. But the reason was because apparently this whole episode structure was born out of scheduling conflicts. Oh, um, funny. Okay. And so, like, we can see in this episode, like, Xander's not in it, Anya's not mm-hmm. in it, and everyone who is in it, so Buffy, Willow, Dawn, Spike a little bit, are um, interacting not with each other but with other people. And yeah. We also have a couple guest stars as well. So I think you can, if you know that, like, you can kind of see, oh, this is clearly meant to overcome, like, that. a real-world problem. But I think it makes a really interesting episode. Um, I think so, too. And I have to say, not, well, I, you know what? I can give you my reaction afterwards. Yeah. Sorry. So I just I wanted to preface I, my recap with that because, really, not a ton happens because we're broken off into these, like, separate sort of vignettes. Mm-hmm. Um, that are kind of intercut with each other, but they're really just a, a series of conversations or interactions. Um, so I mm-hmm. think I'll talk about them one by one. Yeah. Um, so first, um, we'll start with Buffy because she's the first one that we really see. She's in the graveyard patrolling. A vampire rises. Um, they start fighting, very typical, except the vampire recognizes her. So turns out as 
is should be more frequently the case in Sunnydale. It's someone that Buffy knows. Like she went to high school with this person. Apparently he went away to college and came back to do a one year psych internship at the Sunnydale mental hospital, which was probably his first mistake. The second Mm -hmm. of which is that he then got bitten and turned into a vampire. And, um, so they kind of, trade-off, chatting, fighting, but Buffy kind of takes the opportunity of, like, this guy as a psych, a person interested in psychology is kind of treating their conversation as if it's a therapy session, and Buffy, probably looking for someone to talk to, kind of opens up to him. Also, you know, not to start analyzing, but, like, she is going to kill him, so... Yeah. Low risk. We'll talk about that. But um, Buffy opens up to him. They talk a lot about, like, where she's at. We're getting kind of more indications of, like, where Buffy's headspace is at this season. She talks a lot about where her headspace was at last season. And this guy kind of reads her not inaccurately, um, I think. But, you know, Buffy's at various points, like, uncomfortable with this conversation and also surprised at some of the insights that he offers. Um, Meanwhile... You know, they're kind of arguing over, like, whether or not Buffy's going to be able to kill him. We're never really in any doubt that she is going to be able to kill him, and she does. But before she kills him, he lets her know that Spike is the one that sired him. Mm-hmm. And so, also, during this episode, we do catch tiny glimpses of Spike. He's out at the bronze. He gets hit on by a woman. We see him walking her home. And it all seems a little bit sweet, like, poor, you know, adult Spike is just having some... Um, human interaction but then he bites the woman and we see Mm. this after this other vampire tells Buffy that Spike is the one that sired him so clearly Spike has been out biting people Mm -hmm. Um, meanwhile Dawn um, in perhaps the most horror movie slant of this whole episode is at home you know doing her teenager thing ordering pizza when she's not supposed to getting pizza on Buffy's clothes microwaving marshmallows She's 15, whatever you do when you Mm -hmm. are home alone. She's doing all of those things. Um, She's watching a movie on the TV and starts to hear these, like, knocking noises. Um, And then stuff starts to really freak out. So, like, the TV, she mutes the TV. It turns back on. All the audio in the house turns back on. We start to see flashes of Joyce's dead body on the couch. Um, Like, blood is written on the walls. Like, a lot of scary stuff is happening Finally, Dawn kind of starts to realize, like, there's a spirit there. She tries to communicate with it. She thinks it's her mom. She finds out her mom's not alone. And so she's trying to banish this other spirit. We see glimpses of some kind of, like, hell beast monster or something. And Dawn does ultimately manage to banish the bad spirit and then have a brief chat with Joyce, who tells her that when it gets bad, Buffy's not going to be there for her. Buffy's not going to choose Dawn. So Dawn is obviously traumatized by both this interaction and this message that Buffy isn't going to care enough to choose her. So then we get to the last interaction, which is Willow, who's Mm -hmm. studying in the library, and she encounters the ghost of... um, Oh, God, help me out. What's her name? Cassie. Cassie, thank me. Thank you. So we just <laughs> met, So we did mention that this wasn't going to be the last we saw of Cassie, even though she died. She was the student that Buffy tried to help. Mm-hmm. And um, Cassie comes to chat with Willow, basically as an intermediary, to let her know that Tara is trying to communicate with her. Tara can't see Willow. Like, Willow's not allowed to see Tara as a punishment for everything that she did to Warren. 
you know, Willow kind of buys this. Like, she's like, oh, yeah, I mean, it was really bad. So she's communicating through Cassie, and Cassie's trying to tell her, you know what, like, you can't use your magic. And Willow's saying, no, I I know I can't use dark magic, but Giles said that I have to use good magic on occasion because, you know, I have to learn how to control it, and if I don't, then it could be really bad. Um, And Cassie's like, well, the solution, obviously, is that you just kill yourself because... Uh, you know, we can see your path and the path is that you're going to kill all these people. So to stop that from happening, you should just die, which is obviously a step too far as Willow knows. This is not a path that Tara would ever suggest to her. Mm -hmm. Um, So it becomes pretty clear Cassie is not there doing what she says and she's probably not even Cassie. We see her kind of smile and turn inside out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really gross. Um, so Willow's really unsettled by that. And then finally, I mentioned guest stars. So we have the return in this episode of the trio. Mm-hmm. Um, first, Jonathan and um, Andrew are driving back into Sunnydale. Apparently, they've been in Mexico this whole time. And they've, they're coming back to save everybody from something, so they say. Like, they're on a mission. They go to the high school. They break in Mission Impossible style. They go down to the basement, and they're trying to find a seal. And they ultimately find it, but the way they find it is that, unbeknownst to Jonathan this whole time, Andrew has been communicating with an imaginary Warren, who is basically telling him, like, you're doing the right thing, and ultimately we see this vision of Warren. What he's really done is brought Andrew and Jonathan there to the seal so that Andrew can kill Jonathan on top of the seal, and we don't know what happens, but I'm assuming all that blood that leaked out onto the seal is going to serve a purpose. So Warren has come back to Sunnydale with, sorry, not Warren. Andrew has come back to Sunnydale with an imaginary Warren and he has killed Jonathan. Um, yeah. Also, we didn't know there was a seal in the basement. So right. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much it. Well, I have to say that I didn't know this was due to scheduling conflicts other than knowing that they did want Amber Benson to be in the episode and then she wasn't able to be in it or or didn't want to be in it. I'm not sure which of those, but that Cassie is like also a kind of last minute rewrite. But I I don't feel like it it is obvious now that you've said it that like, oh, now they've all, all could have filmed these on separate days, but it didn't feel out of place at all to me. Like, I feel like this is. You know, as always, kind of Buffy can often be the, the, the what's the what's the word? Experimental. It's the yin yin to the yang. No, that's not right. Mm, it's just the example, the example of everything of how everything can go right, <laughs> versus Angel, where it's like, oh, they don't even know how to write a pregnant Cordelia, yeah. <laughs> into the story. Whereas here, it's like literally no one can be in the same room, and they make a pretty great episode. I mean, I think this was. A really, this was really good, right? Like, I, I liked it. I don't have no complaints, yeah, but so, I thought it was great. Like, it didn't feel at all like, oh, this is completely contrived. It really felt like this is the way we finally first get introduced to the kind of villain of the season. I mean, we got introduced at the very end of the of the first episode in this season, but you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of all just been simmering and to kind of get to the end of this where nothing has exactly been revealed explicitly, but it's just, it's clear that we're like going headfirst now into that part of the story. I just thought it worked really well. No, I think you're absolutely right. That that was one thing I did want to ask you and I forgot, which was, did you like the episode? Because it is a little bit 
experimental for Buffy. It's a very different tone than like what we've seen. Um, but I think it, I think you're right. I think it a hundred percent works for me. Like, you know, in some ways this is maybe the scariest way we could be introduced to this villain, yes. which is yes. everybody alone while they encounter this person. Like, yeah, I think everybody in some form either encounters this phrase that we've heard, which is from beneath you, it devours or, you know, they're making that connection to something mm-hmm. else. Like this vampire is telling Buffy that he feels connected to everything. And so it's not unreasonable to assume that he's a messenger for Buffy. I mean, he's clearly delivering there to deliver the message to Buffy that Spike sired him. Mm-hmm. And we see Spike killing another woman. You mean that, he's there narratively to do that, not yes, like Spike no, no, sent no, yes, him yes, to yes, do yes, it. Exactly. Okay. But like Sorry. also to let Buffy talk through like some of her issues. But like he, yeah. his his main reveal to Buffy is Spike is killing people. And mm-hmm. we see proof of that. But we don't know yet like what, where that's what going means. or what that means. Yeah. Exactly. And then Willow gets told the sa- like to kill herself and she's encountering this. Th- so everybody's left with this like unsettling information. So like mm-hmm. Buffy finds out about Spike. Willow thinks she's in, con- in contact with Tara, but what she's really in contact with is this villain who is telling her that this villain is tired of playing by the normal rules. Mm-hmm. She's going off book. She's going rogue. Get ready. You're not prepared. Dawn is being told that it's going to get really bad and her sister's not going to protect her, which for Dawn, like, the reason she's prancing around the house alone, happy, you know, doing whatever is because she feels safe and she feels protected. Like, but Buffy's not, she's told that Buffy's not going to to be there. And then Jonathan finds out that, you know, the person that he thought has been his kind of partner in crime this whole time is, like, working with someone else and, like, kills him. And then Andrew, we can see, is also a little bit unsettled that this ghost of Warren has, like, asked him to do this thing. And Mm -hmm. what we also learned is that Jonathan and Andrew have also been told this warning of From Beneath Devours. They mistranslated it slightly. Or (laughs) from starting with your bottom. bottom. (laughs) But we, we are made to understand that somebody in Spanish delivered them this message. Well, and that they're, well, we can talk about them separately. Never mind. I don't want to, I'm not quite ready to get into that yet, but yeah, I, I, I just have to say though that you're, um, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I really think it makes even a stronger case for how well this works as an episode. I, I, the only thing I'll disagree with is that I, I don't actually think this is that out of the box for Buffy. I mean, it is, it's certainly not the normal act one, act two, act three, Exactly. But because at this point, the show Buffy has done so many other experiments, like it it just really doesn't at all raise any suspicion to me that this was just a construct to get because they couldn't get everyone in the same room. Not to keep hitting on that point. I just mean to say I it is experimental and I I I guess yeah, I mean but like I, I just for like, me, like because they call attention to it so explicitly, like it feels like an yeah. art film almost like because it's got a title it's got this mm-hmm. moody introduction and yes like maybe the structure of this episode isn't quite a departure but i think we're meant to see from the very beginning like this episode is different yeah um so i certainly think there were some highlights and or rather i think there is a clear winner in what my favorite part of this episode was um, and I have to say that uh, Buffy's little vampire friend really takes the cake for me. I really thought I can't I can't for the life of me remember his name right now. Even in the episode, I was like, "What's his name again?" Which is like, yeah. Sort could of you the tell point. that I couldn't remember either? <laughs> oh, apparently it's Holden. Okay, great. I mean, not even that kind of makes sense. Um, 
I just, I also think, yes, as much as this is doing its own structure and is set up in this, in this way, her and Holden's interactions were so like quintessential Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like having little jabs, having little jokes, but really having this emotional core to the conversation that I just thought it was that every time they cut back to them, I was like, everything he said, I laughed at, or I like, you know, felt for Buffy or like, it totally worked on me. I was just like eating out of their hands for that segment of the episode. And I did pretty much like all the other segments, but I, that one really took the cake for me. I just thought he was so great. So I do want to talk about this segment because it, on its face is maybe the most comedic one yeah, of yeah, the bunch like, where Buffy's getting like armchair psychoanalyzed by yeah. a vampire <laughs> who's like just come out of the grave and like it is funny that they're taking enough time between fighting to even start to talk but like I think it also speaks to the absurdity of this world where like Buffy is encountering people that she knows she knew on some yeah. level it does, I don't even want to really get too far into this argument, but it does go a little bit against the accepted wisdom of, like, it's a demon with your memories, blah, well, blah, blah, but, of like, because yeah. this episode totally falls apart if that's the angle that you buy into, because this is clearly, a lot of this interaction is clearly, like, Holden, right? Well, I think you and I have agreed that it doesn't... So, We've agreed to let that go. <laughs> well, it doesn't, even the show isn't committed to that philosophy anymore. I wish that right. they would explicitly bring it up, to be honest, but I don't think that. Yeah. Um, I just thought I'd mention it because. I don't, th- I don't it, think anybody, we're under any illusions about that anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I do love this interaction. And I also, I briefly mentioned this in my recap, but I love that Buffy does take the opportunity yeah. to open up to somebody and talk about her feelings, her regrets. We get a little bit more insight into like, like we knew last season kind of a lot of where she's coming from, but it was never explicitly stated or not, not always explicitly stated. And she does clearly tell him like, I didn't feel like I deserved to be loved. I felt mm-hmm. like I needed to be punished. These are all the reasons that I did this. And then, you know, here's the capper with a vampire, like, you know, all of that, it's nice to hear, but I also think for Buffy, it's a like she's admitting also that her friends have no idea how she feels. She hasn't told them. So even in this new spirit of honesty that we were kind of praising a while mm-hmm. ago, like there are still things that she's not going to tell them. And I love that she does tell him, but it's so low stakes because ultimately she, know- yeah. she knows she's going to kill him. Yeah. So no, like, I agree. Her secrets go with him to the dust, right? Yeah. Um, so. Also, though, what I kind of love is that everything he says is very Psych 101, but he really nails her, like, out the gate, right? Like, he's like, you feel superior, and, you know, and then it is sort of the, like, narrative arc of their conversation that by the end of it, she's gotten to the point where she's ready to admit that out loud. Again, even though it's just to a vampire who she's going to kill in a minute, but yeah, I just, I I do like that he was, like, actually really good at this. Sorry, Holden, you could have had a great life. (laughs) I think it's hilarious that the ultimate diagnosis is that Buffy has a superiority complex. Right, right. She has an inferiority complex about her superiority (laughs) complex. That was so funny. (laughs) Wait Um, a second. (laughs) So I have to say, uh, the only thing that I... It's not a criticism at all, but this is the second or third time, I think, this season that there's sort of been a throwaway reference to the fact that it's sort of what you're saying that like, yeah, because Buffy lives in Sunnydale, she sort of has this more personal connection to some of the demons and at least the vampires that are there. But, you know, they're, the first part of their conversation is Holden going to great lengths to remind her who he is. And it sort of reminded me of like the first episode this season when they're um, 
you know, like the, um, ghosts or whatever that are at Sunnydale high school, like are sort of being like, Oh, you didn't, you know, you didn't save me because you were too busy doing blah, blah, blah. And like, I do feel like there's this little undercurrent this season of like kind of all the people that aren't ever in the actual lens of the show. And I feel like there is an opportunity there to kind of dig into that, but I don't think that they really ever do. Unless I'm forgetting Maybe, I mean, maybe because I've never watched season seven with such a careful eye, maybe I'll, we will notice things as we go on, but on its face, I can't think of any way that they're going to majorly address that. And I think that it is a really interesting idea, or at least that like, you know, Buffy's struggling with the superiority complex, but she's also got to have quite a guilt complex for like the people she's not able to save or the people that used to be her friends that then are demons, you know? No, I think that's a really good point to call out because we are in the final season, let's Mm -hmm. not forget. And so the show on some level has to be also reckoning with its record, right? So Buffy has all these wins. Obviously she's still here. Like they've saved the world a lot. Um, But there are losses and the losses, it's kind of implied that a lot of them happened off screen. We didn't see them. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's some wins that happen off screen, but you're right. Like there's a whole bunch of interactions that are being called back to and referenced that we never saw And Buffy's never indicating, like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, those whatever demon ghost things in the first episode are referencing. She's not like, hang on, like, this is made up. Like, Right, right. It's either that, like, she does remember or so much has happened that she's, like, can't keep track of everything. It it kind of goes back even all the way to, like, Andrew, right, where there's this new character where we're like, who? And everyone's like, oh, Tucker's brother. And it's like, oh, (laughs) because you're just building on this universe that you've already created. And they, in some ways, have, like, the luxury to do that. And that's... I think a testament to how rich this world is that they've built. Right. But you're right that they do seem to be going into like the unexplored crevices of it a little bit here. Um, with a character that we've never met who clearly Buffy is supposed to remember and who also interacted with other people in this universe that we have met. So he does right. mention Scott Hope. Yes. <laughs> um, who turns out to be gay, but also he's aware of a little bit of the fallout of Scott dumping Buffy, which is something that we saw, but you know, and also his knowledge of like, Oh, people said you were either just dating some old guy or, you know, whatever else. And it's like, these fringes are now getting their moment to kind of weigh in. And it's something that we saw a little bit from Jonathan in the prom, right? Where we're made aware that everybody does know that Buffy's helping Mm -hmm. them and doing all these things and they give her this award. But you know, it's kind of a nice confirmation, I guess, that Buffy is being, like, her actions are being noticed. But then I think what we're supposed to see from this is that they also have consequences, unintended or not. Right, because as much as the problem is this final, it is a moment where we finally see that people have noticed and she has made a difference. I mean, those are the people that survived, right? Like, the people that did die, we don't ever hear from them. And never forget, those are the people that, down the line turn out to be her enemies a little bit. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. you know, we do see Jonathan again in this episode, and, you know, he's interesting to talk about. Maybe we should talk about him in a minute. But, like, throughout most of high school, Buffy's either helping him because he's, like, being bullied or sad sack or something. But in the prom, Mm -hmm. that's, like, his shining moment of, like, he's clearly taking charge of this effort to reward Buffy, but then where he ultimately ends up is really tragic. Yes. Um, and we do know th- from episodes like Superstar and all of that, like the the reasonings behind a lot of that um, 
Yeah. Should we just talk about Jonathan? Um, oh, I feel like I had one more thing to say. Oh, yeah. Well, just before we move on off of Holden completely, I um, you mentioned Scott Hope. Yeah. I totally had that feeling when he brought up Scott of like when you do hear about like an old high school friend and it was someone that you sort of had, you know, you have like fond memories of. And it was just like really nice to get an update about him, I guess is what I'm saying. I was like, certainly it was sort of this like little meant mostly as like a joke sort of but i really felt like oh my god scott <laughs> I and also him from high confirmation school. Like, that he was like kind of a jerk which is like yeah, what we saw at the end of his arc but also like that he said all the girls that he dated that he like that broke up with him were gay or something well but i think that was also meant to be like his internalized like struggle no, with I think his so own too, sexuality but, like, you know less of a jerk thing I just loved getting an update on him and I was like, oh, I'm oddly, you know, I'm just like so into this world that he feels like my high school friend that I just was reminded of. Yeah. Anyway. And I also really appreciate how obviously Holden is a vampire and he's evil now and he makes several references to that, but he has such a good head on his shoulders. And I loved when he was like, I mean, I love my girlfriend, but I'm not going to vampify her now just so we can be together forever. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) Can you just, yeah, like it's not making you completely irrational to be a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's when, that's what I did like of like, you know, this idea that like, when you become a vampire, you become kind of more of what you were before. Yeah. And so maybe he's just like more rational and thoughtful than yeah. he was. <laughs> it's just for evil means. Yeah. Okay. Now we can talk about Jonathan. Okay. So I feel like we have to talk and about Andrew. Jonathan and yeah. the trio too. Yeah. The whole thing. But Jonathan, yeah, I, first of all, rip Jonathan. I Such know. a sad end for him. I feel the worst for him because he was always clearly the like, most reluctant member of the trio. Yeah. Um, the most, the one who most like was holding on to like shreds of his humanity and his like moral like guideposts. Um, um, well, and, and to be clear, it's see, they're coming back into town to, at least he's coming back into town to repent a little bit, right? Like yes. he and Jonathan, I'm sorry, he and Andrew have some sort of information. It wasn't exactly clear to me what, they had but they've come they he he makes it clear that jonathan is coming back to sunnydale to warn buffy and to give her information that he thinks she needs and it is in a little bit of like he's they're definitely hoping that like they'll be forgiven and get to join the scooby you know and like get to be part of this crew which is i think something jonathan's always wanted but like i just yes he is the only one who really ever seemed that regretful of the things that happened in season six and now that he's had even more time to live with it i appreciate that he's obviously a villain is he worthy of forgiveness good open question. You know, I think that's up to everybody individually, but like, I appreciate that he is certainly the one who is at least trying to make up for everything that he was part of. Absolutely. And I think Jonathan is this great example of what we were kind of talking about was the accidental collateral damage of like Buffy's journey. Right. In that. Yeah. Everything that we've seen. So Jonathan has been an interesting character throughout this whole show where we check in with him every now and then and we get specific episodes built around him in a way that we don't get with a lot of other peripheral characters. And the through line for Jonathan has always been that he just wants friends and he just wants to belong. I mean, Mm -hmm. we go all the way back, you know, I think if we go back to Earshot, like, you know, he's making a bad decision but the reason is because he feels alone and misunderstood and he just wants friends Mm -hmm. um and then we go to superstar and 
you know, he's made a bad decision, but the reason is because he just feels lonely and he just wants friends. Right. And joining the trio, it's a bad decision, but he right. just feels lonely <laughs> and he just wants friends and power and, you know, to maybe not feel so insignificant. And we see him coming back here again. It's a bad decision. He doesn't know it, but he just wants friends. He his he just wants to be included yeah. somewhere. We, we see him talking about with the Scoobies. He wants to just maybe get invited over to Buffy's house. Like, right, it's right. so sad and it's so tragic. It is really because, like, sad. His motivations at the end of the day are still so simple. He just doesn't want to be lonely, but it's brought him on this journey of, you know, ultimately ending up doomed because for yeah. whatever reason, he just can't drop this like desire or he never is able to fulfill it. And it's so interesting because if Buffy had just maybe made one little extra effort with him. I mean, first of all, I want to be clear. It's not Buffy's job to do of that. Course. But, yeah. but if she had just done one extra thing to reach out to him or make more of an effort to be his friend or even after Superstar, instead of all of them just like yeah, walking away, they had like, yeah. but like, hey, this guy wants to be friends. Like, let's just give him a chance. All of this could have been different. And well, so we see like, while it's not Buffy's fault, this is a bit of a collateral fallout of like choices that were made and like paths not taken. And like, ultimately we're getting to the point where like Jonathan is killed by Andrew at the behest of Ghost Warren. Ghost <laughs> so, Warren. Screw you, Ghost Warren. I mean, um, we, yeah, it's not. Warren, it's true though. Right. And <laughs> what I think is also interesting as you describe this is how much it reminds me of the Anya situation a couple, you know, a couple episodes ago, which is to say that I agree with you that it's definitely not Buffy's responsibility. And Jonathan clearly makes his own choices. And he, especially at this point is an adult, you know, like he's well yeah. in charge of all of his own choices and consequences that they bring. But again, compared to Willow or whoever else, you know, or Spike or any of their friends, when they do care about someone, they are willing to overlook so many flaws and give them that opportunity to join up again. And I guess I'm really not saying it to criticize her again. Like, I think that's true of everybody, but it is just an interesting, I think, observation, which is that they're always going to care more about their actual friends. And Jonathan has never been able to crack into that. And it is, it is, it is a shame because... Yeah, and I think even more kind of to your point, it's not that oh, if only Buffy had done something, but like it, it, it does just really, it's an extra twist of the knife that Jonathan was always so close to the other side of it. You know, like he yeah. is just, he is tragic. He's super tragic. He is like, is it fate? Is it all, is it just him? It's probably kind of both, but it's like, you know, he did finally find friends and they turn out to be complete monsters. <laughs> like he did finally... Yeah, I don't know. I just he did finally repent and go on this righteous path. And what does it get him killed? Like, he really is just so sad. He tries so hard. Oh, he's the I feel. Yes. Oh, I love Jonathan. I know that he's bad, but I love him anyway. He's not. But here's the thing. I don't believe Jonathan is truly bad. I think he's truly flawed. And yeah, he's made yeah, bad decisions. Yeah. I mean, no, very interesting to see then. I mean, I don't know what to do with Andrew, especially right at this moment. And it was so funny because I was watching this episode with um, someone staying with us this weekend. So I had to kind of give this whole rundown of like who everybody is, <laughs> who everybody is. Cause I hadn't seen anything since season three. And I was like trying to explain the trio. And I said, I, it kind of just slipped out of my mouth that I was like, you know, these two were bad, but they weren't as bad as Warren. So they're sort of like, 
they could be they are in a position where they might be able to earn forgiveness and then at the end of the episode andrew murders him and they were like uh uh i'm sorry what <laughs> i was like well, about first that of all, i was trying to set the stage i did know that this was gonna happen you know but I, it was just kind of funny because i was like well i really didn't mean to say that but ugh, anyway but also let's talk a little bit about andrew too i mean we can reserve we'll have plenty of time to talk about andrew yeah. but i do want to mention also that He's not that different from Jonathan. His moral true. center is a little bit less existent, he's but more, he yeah. is also making decisions. You know, he's also a little bit tragic. He's clearly in love with Warren. Yes. And making a lot of these decisions for Warren's approval. And even with, he knows Warren is like imaginary or a ghost or something, but he's also just like, I miss you so much. Like, yeah, you I know, know. And it's clear that he's following these directions because this entity has promised him something yeah you know taking advantage of his heartbreak and you know yeah I, it's no i don't right. want to give right. him I too mean, much credit but he also is like another tragic figure in a different way he is i'm very interested to see how i keep feeling about him because yeah, i want to know, know when i when i flip the switch because i do remember liking him <laughs> right right yeah anyway that was heartbreaking Ugh. Um, All right, should we yeah. talk about Willow? Sure. Okay. Willow's was interesting to me because, first of all, clearly written as let's just make Allison Hannigan cry as much as possible. Yes. Like, that was a showcase of her abilities to emote um, beautifully. But, yes. you know, it's an interesting thing because I think her situation to me really stuck out as, like, an example of how far Willow has come. Yeah. Because... She's clearly uncertain what's happening. She's emotionally vulnerable. She thinks she's communicating with Tara. But through it all, she's still remaining, on some level, objective and wary and Mm -hmm. uncertain enough of what's actually happening that the moment things go awry or things seem a little bit off, she's immediately like, oh, Oh. Mm -hmm. well... This isn't real. And, and I just was really impressed because so much of what happened with her at the end of last season was because she had this inability to control her grief and her vulnerabilities. Yeah. And she gave in to all this power. And we see her confronting her emotions on a very raw level and still being able to, like, back off and be a little bit objective about the situation. And I was like, bravo, Willow. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. And I have to say, though, this is the only one where I think their inability to get out um, Amber Benson to come back as Tara makes this story a little bit less good than it would have been. Because I think Cassie was like as good of a choice as they could have made if if Tara, you know, Tara herself can't be there. I think Cassie, which is to say Azure Sky. I, I did think she did a good job in this episode. I just think the whole thing is that what you know, whatever this thing is that's ultimately controlling most of these people is trying to convince Will to kill herself or something. And it, it, the, message, the message is from Tara. It just would have been a lot more powerful had it really been Tara. And then Willow had to really struggle with this idea that it's not really her. I just think it would have been more I just think it would have been better with actually there. I think it's a little too easy for Willow to figure out what's going on at the end when it doesn't look like Tara. I mean, granted, obviously it's just an illusion. It's not, it's not none of these people, but I just think it would have been better. And it's not their fault. I know that it was like, that's what they wanted and they couldn't get her. So, you know, you do what you can. And I think it still worked. I just think I, I, I long for the episode that could have been. (laughs) 
I agree. It might have been even more impressive of Willow to kind of turn yes. it down if she is grappling with, you know, what she thinks is real Tara. And it is an interesting choice because she doesn't, other than one episode's casework, she doesn't really have a connection with Cassie. Right. Um, and she didn't even meet her. Right, exactly. And what I was actually just now wondering is, like, because we saw at the beginning of the season all the people they apparently could bring back, like, all these faces, even mm-hmm. if this conversation had happened with, say, Jenny Callender instead. Yeah, I wonder, interesting. Because then you can add in the angle of, like, ultimately what this ghost is trying to do is get Willow to not use her magic. Right. And so by any means necessary, here's my convenient solution. You kill yourself. But the reason is still because I just want you to not use your magic. Mm-hmm. And what if you had the person who first introduced Willow to magic telling her not to use her magic? Right. Like, yeah. to no, me, that right. felt like... Maybe they couldn't get her either, but that yeah. seems like it might have been a little bit more powerful than this rando person. Yeah, I know. Like. <laughs> she does just feel like a rando. <laughs> like, but okay. I, what I got was, like, maybe they couldn't get Tara, and so they really liked Azura Sky, and so they just brought her back. And yeah, like, and, yeah. you know, as specifically a conduit to Tara, yeah. Yes. It still works for me. I just, yeah. Um, it, it's interesting, too, and I, I, I'm sure that this comes up, but I can't actually remember I do have to say, I think that this interaction with Willow was the biggest flub. And obviously because, well, they go, you know, saying to kill herself was clearly a step too far. Even You know, when she said it, even not just because I knew where this episode goes, I was like, oh, yeah, no, now you're being too obvious. You know, you've, you've misplayed your hand. But what I really think is interesting is also, though, this creature or, you know, demon or whatever it is, presence, is also overplaying its hand because now we know that Willow is super crucial, right? Like, yeah. to go to the, these lengths to specifically get her to not use her magic, I really think, to me, is like, oops, you've accidentally outed probably who one of the most important players is. <laughs> not that we wouldn't know that anyway, but I, I just think it's interesting. Like, it's an extra flub in this case, because not only does it not work, but I don't know. I mean, you're right. It does feel a bit like this thing is stretching itself and making some really interesting bad decisions. Like, you've overplayed your hand with Willow by, first of all, letting her know that your goal is to have her be dead or not mm-hmm. not part of the plan, but now you've also conveyed that she's important. And you've also now tried to alienate the Slayer's sister from her, so her, mm-hmm. like, emotional connection and support. And so, like, I don't know if they're going to make that connection, but, like, yeah. it does feel... That also feels a bit like an overplay yeah. of the hand. Um because yeah. Dawn's was a bit, Dawn's was different than everybody's, where it her was. situation was a lot more violent and a lot more physical and also seemed to be like a lot more something like mystical was really going on and was clearly designed to terrify her. Mm-hmm. But like you, ultimately whether Dawn believes what this tells her, I mean. I don't remember I, how she I reacts. don't either, but yeah. like it seems set up to be successful because, you know, Dawn cast out this or thinks she cast out this right. entity and then was told by her mother, you know, Buffy won't choose you. Yeah. That might be I the mean, one that's ultimately successful. But to me, that also feels like a bit of like a displaying your hand. Yeah. Yeah. I do like Dawn's in that it was, they, it went to great lengths to convince her, you know, I, I think she kind of got the, the best effort. Of, like, it really made it believable that that was her mom. For yeah, real. And also, Even though we know that it's not. We know that it's not, but I really don't know that it's clear in the show. I, I think you could... I think most people would be able to decide, oh, if Cassie wasn't real, then probably none of these are. But, um, 
you know, or wasn't really Cassie or wasn't really Tara. But I, I do think that one was by far the most convincing. Yeah, because as I you agree. mentioned, like, Dawn has to actually cast out, like, a whole separate ghost first in order to get to this part with her mom. And that, and hers was so scary. <laughs> you know what? It was really scary, but I also just, like, kudos to the show also for just showing us how capable Dawn has become. Yeah, that's I mean, true. Dawn was terrified powerless almost and took it upon herself to like cast a spell and like throw out this demon like yeah. I was like go Dawn <laughs> I mean except that her first instinct was to smash the microwave while well, it was on she I was the like house what are you process. doing <laughs> yeah I was glad that like I did actually think this was a, a successful like not um cover-up was that like I was getting so irritated I was like Dawn you're making such a mess and then I was like oh well it all would have gone to hell anyway because once the poltergeist thing really got it you know it started breaking things I was like all right it really didn't matter what she had once done the but... windows exploded who cares yeah it didn't matter <laughs> but yeah no I mean that was a little bit funny but like you know she threw some glitter at it made it <laughs> yeah no but I agree you're, you're totally right that like she does try and she does the complete logical thing which is try and call Buffy Buffy isn't available for good reason and so then she just has to go from there, you know, and she really did make it work whether or not, or at least she thinks she made it work. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, but I liked, I liked hers quite a bit and it was heartbreaking to have Joyce come back just to be used by some evil I purpose. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> oh shoot, we should move on. We've been yeah. talking about this episode forever. Okay. Well, suffice it to say, I think it really worked. I'm, I think this was a really good way to introduce this particular villain because it's not my favorite big bad. I don't think. And I think it's the most, it's mostly because it's the least concrete and it is like, it just has a little a bit time, of like everything. <laughs> yeah. I have a hard time getting my head around it, but that said, I think this is the, this is a great way to get into it. Yeah. And I appreciate that Buffy's the only one who doesn't actually have a visitation. You know, her dead person is just a vampire. <laughs> well, that's what I'm never really clear on. And I, I know we want to move on a little bit, but, mm -hmm. you know, because Holden is here to deliver her this information and we also see Spike biting someone, it seems to me like he is also a pawn in this, but in a very less, like in a less obvious way. But I think ultimately, like, you know, I think it's just coincidence. Maybe. Or, you know, yeah. it, Spike is siring a lot of people. One of them was bound to... It's yeah. only... Be, it's just that it took long... He, She stalled him long enough to get words out of him, I think is kind of the only thing that made him special in that regard. Anyone else she would have had already killed, you know? Yeah. Well, we will find out. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, all right, well, let's talk about <laughs> Apocalypse Now-ish. Okay. Um, I want to say I... I think we're in agreement on this episode, but I, I do feel like it's better than the movie Apocalypse Now. <laughs> you hate that movie. I've never actually seen it. <laughs> so boring. Um, okay, so I I mean, I said this before we started recording. Uh, oddly, kind of not that much happens in this episode. So hopefully I can kind of get through the summary quickly. Um, you know, Cordelia got her memories back, and then had this terrifying vision, ran back with Connor, kind of as she was a few episodes ago. Um, I'll come back to them. But the rest of it is pretty much um, angel investigations, like, businesses happen. Like, at first it seems like it's kind of busy, and then it is, like, clear that this is completely abnormal. Like, it's not just that, like, their marketing is working or something. Like, something 
there is an increase in activity for sure. Um, Fred and Gunn go out to investigate one thing that totally terrifies them. I mean, it was just rats, but sure, creepy, but should they have run away? Not so sure about that. Um, They're also still fighting or rather are starting to explicitly fight with one another because of the murdering of that professor a couple episodes ago. Um, So things aren't going so great for them. And Fred ends up running away um, to hide out in that diner that they used to go on dates with. Meanwhile, Gunn, Wesley shows up, Lorne and Angel are all dealing with this onslaught of what appear to be um, omens of the apocalypse, right? Like there's all these crows, there's all those rats. They just get the sense that something big is happening. So Angel takes it on himself to go to um, Wolfram and Hart because they know that they're, they extracted whatever information Lauren got out of Cordelia when she first came back um, from, you know, being a higher being. Um, and he's able to convince Lila that she should fork it over to him because as he puts it, either he gets rid of this apocalypse that they clearly, he knows, he can tell by the way that they're acting that they weren't, this isn't put on by them and it in fact is getting in the way of their own apocalyptic plans. So either he, he fixes it or he dies and that's probably good for them too. So she agrees um, and forks over some paperwork that I would like to discuss <laughs> that has all the <laughs> inner workings of Lauren's vision uh, somehow printed onto it, sure. Um, and they're able to piece together where, you know, where the um, ground zero kind of is for this particular apocalypse. Um, they show up at um, some new club that's opened up and encounter this terrifying, you know, Satan demon type guy. He completely uh, they're no match for him, all of them together, even Angel. Um, Angel gets really seriously injured and everybody else is not doing so hot. And then the Angel, I'm sorry, the Angel, the demon ends up jumping away and leaving them behind. Um, so as I mentioned, kind of <laughs> on the side of this, obviously there's this whole Cordelia Connor storyline, blah, blah, blah. I think the less said about it, the better. Suffice it to say, they actually see the demon first get raised or first appear on the spot where Connor was born. Um, and, you know, Connor gets injured, so Cordelia goes to nurse him back to health, blah, 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 blah. they flirt, they just, you know, they bone. It's not the best. <laughs> I, like, um, threw up in my mouth a little bit. It was terrible. I hated it. So, obviously, I hated it. We knew we were going to hate it. It was just as bad as I thought. I have to say, though, I actually, that storyline aside, I did like this episode. I mean, Wesley's finally back in the group. Angel is being the best version of Angel, I thought. This was the first time in so long that I've not, you know, not really hated how Angel is acting. Like, he was heroic, he was sensical, he was badass, and, like, he got in that... I mean, I thought his fight with the demon was pretty exciting. Like, I really... You know, he's, like, kind of getting back into the swing of things, as are kind of the rest of them. And it's a shame that this is, you know, that this is the beginning to the end for Cordelia and that they warp that into this storyline. Oh, and that angel <laughs> witnessed it? Did you? Oh, right. And then the oh. angel sees them at the end. Yeah. I also thought that framing was a little confusing because at first I thought Lorne saw them and then it was like, oh no, Lorne's back at the, you know, whatever. I thought that was, that whole framing was like a little bit confusing, but yes, angel sees them sleeping together. Yeah. Well, the sky is literally raining fire. Mm-hmm. So it's apocalypse in a lot of wor- ways. Um, yeah, I agree with you. If we take out that, Part of the episode, (laughs) happy to do so until later date. Um, It's actually, you're right, it's not bad. This is the most, like, 
back to basics kind think, of episode. Yeah, and I think also because this episode delivers on its promises. Like, yes. we're told the apocalypse is coming, and the apocalypse, in fact, shows up. Yes. Now, in the form of one demon, which maybe, maybe gives you the scale, but yeah. like... Also, for a second, I thought the demon was Skip, so I was really confused. (laughs) (laughs) He totally looks like Skip. You're right. You're right. (laughs) Um, I was like, what happened to Skip? (laughs) But, but, you know, it's funny. Until you mentioned it, I didn't even make the connection between the rats and the apocalypse. But you're right. The rats, the birds, all these things happening. Clearly something's up. Even Wolfman Hart's employees are rattled. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think all this, although... (laughs) Can we talk about those weird papers? Like, Please, all those I, smart <laughs> lawyers didn't figure out that it was just like a giant map and so Gunn many, is like, oh, wait, look, these two guys. Yes. Okay. So many flaws in that. Because also, I'm sorry, I, I know that this is a nitpick and I say it curiously with a bit of love. To, I want to know desperately the magic or the technology that they have to get thoughts out of someone's head printed onto eight and a half by 11, like <laughs> printer paper. I was like, okay, I, it's like, I'm not like, even mad about it. What model of laser exactly, printer is that? Like, this is so silly. I don't, I don't not believe that they could come up with some sort of explanation. And frankly, I wish they would because it is so ridiculous. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not even mad about it. It's, it was hilarious. I was like, yep, that's the way you get <laughs> mental images out of a demon's head after Especially he sucked them out of another person's head. It makes sense. You print it on eight and a half by 11 paper. I got it. But like, Do you know what made it, to me even more hilarious was that it turned out to be redundant because once Lauren started right. drawing dots right. on the map like he yeah, made the same symbol and totally I was like right. that to me makes more sense than like yeah, some laser I, printer shooting out images what a letdown of like Wolfram and Hart couldn't do anything with that I'm sorry like it took gun also I I mean kudos a gun I didn't mean to say it like that, that. Wolfram and Hart is not in some way on board or aware of like what's happening like they seem weirdly yeah. out of the loop in a way that they're usually not i guess maybe this is that's lila's flaw maybe okay no, but like i feel like one of lila's bosses would be like yeah it's raining fire it's a good day like right I, I mean i think the way that angel framed it was essentially that like they're in the midst of planning their own apocalypse and this isn't on their terms you know okay so like this is like inconvenient for them yeah i think it was more so thwarting their plans than that okay. they care that, that this makes is sense happening. to me because otherwise i was just like this doesn't yeah like just really go with like, it guys yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean um, wolfman Hart. like let's just say the major plot hole with them is that like they when it's convenient they're all knowing and all seeing and then the rest right. of the time they're like taken by surprise it doesn't for sure really make um, sense. what i did love though was gavin being reduced to like a sniffling <laughs> a sniffling pathetic worm that he is <laughs> he's such a thorn in lila's side last season he was so cocky about it that like is it the most fitting send-off for him maybe not but i did sort of enjoy it only because he's, yeah. he's just been so bad to lila specifically who i love I love Lila, too, now. And here's the thing. I think we're getting to the end of her... Tenure. And Wesley a little bit. Yeah. Um, that was rough, too. things have clearly turned... Well, I was going to say toxic. I feel like they were probably always, always. toxic. Yeah. <laughs> but, but not in a way that's fun to watch. Like, yeah, now it's Her trying sad. to seduce Wesley as Fred and then Ugh. him kind of getting into it was just, like, really weird for me. Well, it was... Um, sa- it was sad. I, I was sad for her and embarrassed for her. Okay, but can I say that this scene finally reminded me what's made what why Wesley has looked so different all season? Because mm. <laughs> he's not wearing glasses. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it took Lila putting glasses on for me to be like, oh yeah, wearing Wesley's glasses. 
Oh, it's that and the five o'clock shadow, though. Yeah, I mean, that too, but yeah. <laughs> um, but it, that scene was really weird. And, you know, also like Wesley posturing with Gunn when he came to the hotel. And it's like all so stupid because it's like, guys, there's a literal apocalypse. Yeah. And you're just like posturing about a girl who's not even there. Yeah, it's um, true. But I, then I did like at the end that like when it came time to it, like Wesley does save Gunn. Yeah. So... And I, you know. I, I wish that it, honestly it had been to a little bit greater fanfare, but I did because I, you know, we really, I guess, are just never going to get the closure that we, you and I, want out of the Angel and Wesley fallout. Like Angel really never is going to apologize the way that I want him to. But I did appreciate even just the moment where he tosses him the weapon and is like, "You in?" Like it did, it did land a little bit for me. I think it could have been better, but I'm not going to not appreciate it. You know. No, and I do buy that it took an apocalypse to get them back mm-hmm. together. Yeah. You know, like, Wesley's only there because he's like, I think we need to compare notes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, man, I, now that we're talking about it, like, this was such a, they're so also, close sorry, to doing I had one good. more thing about Wesley, and I just feel like the show has fully embraced him as, like, unfortunately the number two not the number one yeah. but like for a time during the battle he is the oh. only one standing because he's the only one who thought to bring guns yes no i was like that that caught me off guard as it always does when somebody whips out a gun on this show but it was very jarring but i was, was also like and it's wesley yeah yeah <laughs> and then he had another one after his like yeah. pistols were done it was very badass for a second it was pretty badass yeah um and then of course angel had to be the one to run in and like do the real fight and I was like, yawn. <laughs> oh, see, I liked Angel in this one. I thought it wasn't his, like, righteous fighting. He was just, like, going all in and, like, no, going full No, but to me, force. that whole scene had the air of, like, Wesley is truly, like, badass. Sure. And then the show was like, oh, but, but he's not our hero. main character. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. I mean, honestly, like, what is there even to say about this Cordelia plotline? I, <sighs> what I, I know what there is to say. I think what is the biggest disservice of the moment is that they really aren't tipping their hand that something is wrong with Cordelia. I don't think, you know, it's like she's come back. They go out of their way to make sure we know she has all of Cordelia's memories and knowledge, if not more than Cordelia ever had. So it just really lends credence to like the way that the story has been explained to us thus far. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't take it at face value. And then to see her do this with Connor knowing in that framing is awful. So like, screw you writers. I hate that you think you're being clever, but you're not because you're really, you're literally not giving us any reason to doubt what you're saying. And I don't appreciate that. I don't appreciate being lied to. (laughs) And here's an inconsistency. She tells Angel that the reason she feels distant from him is because she witnessed all of his past deeds, which feel different than hearing about it. Like Angel's like, you know, I was never, he never never tried to hide what I was. And she's like, yeah, but I saw it. That's different. So wouldn't it also stand to reason that she could then see Connor doing all of the bad things he did? Like, I don't know. Right. Locking Angel up in a metal bag, like, you know, box and dropping him into the ocean. And like, that's not a big turnoff. I guess that's supposed to be you know, how we know that that she's just saying a thing. All of these are just words for her. She's there to bone Connor, right? Well, we don't, we don't know that at this right. point. But I'm saying, I guess that's inconsistency could be a clue, but I mean, it's not. 
it's just, I think you're right. The main frustration for me at this point is because I'm watching this as someone who has seen where this is going. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching it knowing what's happening. I'm looking for the clues. And I and feel like the show is also not giving them to us. Exactly. So it basically is just presenting a character going off the rails. Mm-hmm. Like this scene, I was making was a joke. So like, awful. oh, I threw up in my no, mouth. But it, like, it, it's really disturbing it was on so many levels like it's frustrating because it feels like oh one more thing where we're like we can't get angel and cordelia together and then it's like but then to have her go and like first of all her relationship with connor this whole time has been weird it is and creepy and then to take it further she and connor like are having sex angel's watching it feels so weird for this show it does specifically Uh, yeah and also so frustrating because it's like we think about Cordelia Chase, who yeah. we know. Yeah. She would never, no. ever do this. And, like, that's the point is, like, ultimately that's the clue. But, like, the but show is not, frustratingly yeah. implying that it's Cordelia who's just suffering because she's been through this whole thing yeah. and doesn't know what's what and, like, is just looking for comfort. But, like, again, I, yeah. I, I just, oh, it. And I have to and, agree. And to I your think- point that you kind of, I don't remember if you said it. I think you said it off air. But, like. Or maybe you didn't, but like <laughs> Buffy being able to write an entire episode yes. around scheduling conflicts, and we get this garbage because yes. they couldn't figure out how to hide her yeah. belly with like shopping bags. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I just when she called him baby, I that was the moment that like I got a shudder up my spine. I was like, that was. I guess, I guess you're right that that's the clue is how creepy and off note it all is but it's just like they are going out of their way to convince us and remind us that this is really cordelia and that she's really back so i just think it's not working you're right though knowing knowing where it's going i am scouring for the clues they're not there no because this i mean going back and reading some old excerpts of interviews where they're admitting they wrote this on the fly there aren't clues because they were just like so thrown by the concept of a woman having a baby yeah. that they were just like, what are we going to do? Vilify and it's her, like, make you hate her, and then write her but out. this. Yeah. Please, God. Anything but this. Yeah, I agree. Anything. And yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm sorry. <laughs> didn't Scarlett Johansson shoot the Avengers while pregnant? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. It's totally so, possible. I like to think maybe... Well, you know, the interesting thing is... Something to call out at this point. I don't... Because I'm going to throw around a lot of blame. And the blame is going to the showrunners. But um, at this point, let's just be clear. Joss Whedon is not running the show. Hmm. I don't know, They had a different showrunner for seasons four and five. I don't know that that doesn't implicate him, though. I... And I'm not saying it doesn't, but I'm saying, like, the ultimate decision-making is going to him. Because I almost made some quip about, oh, at least he learned from past mistakes. But, like... Mm -mm. I don't know that these are his mistakes, ultimately. I think that everything I've read has implied that it was his choice. I mean, but I want to be clear that, that my, like, I don't know. actually know, but I'm presuming that the ultimate power rests with the showrunner. I mean, not, not if him. you're Joss Whedon and this is your show. I think it does. I think showrunner might, you know, I, I don't know. I, he, he would definitely still have the authority to, like, tell you no, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it's good to point out now that, like, I want to throw a lot of blame around, but it's really hard to do because we don't know enough. To People aren't on the record enough, but exactly. there's definitely like, a lot of implications. It's all going to be conjecture at this point, but I think what is really clear is Charisma Carpenter got pregnant. It was really apparently disruptive to the point where yeah. this is the start of a spiral where they were like, oh, you're pregnant? Let's write it into the show. And 
make a mess of your character in the process mm-hmm. and forget everything about... I mean, we've talked before about the character arcs in the Buffy universe, and I would put Willow, Wesley, and Cordelia in the top Up three. Up among. I agree. And Cordelia's arc stops here, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> I and mean, it's not... It's not I don't, it's not Charisma Carpenter's fault. No. It's not. It's the show. It's the writing. It's, they're going to take everything that has happened over the last, you know, seven seasons of Buffy World and undo all of it. And it's going to be really painful to watch, I think. Mm-hmm. You know what else was um, a shame in this, in this particular moment? I have to say that for the first time ever, I, or at least in a very long time, I did feel some sympathy for Connor specifically. Because there was that moment where the, you know, the demon comes out of the ground in exactly the place that he was born. And he kind of does have this little monologue to Cordelia where he's like, it must be because of me. And I thought that actually was maybe a fruitful well to go down, <laughs> to, to, to dig into whatever, whatever the metaphor is for wells. I just, I think they could have done something there. But the, as I'm saying it, the flip side to that is that it actually, it made him sing, seem younger than ever to kind of have him in this super emo raw state and I just it made it all the worse that that was her solution to this particular situation you know but I just I think it's a shame because like I said this is the first time in a long time I've really liked Angel this was the first time that I ever felt a twinge of emotion for Connor and that this is where the story goes this is like there's so much here to work with and this didn't need to be it yeah and I also just want to briefly call out that they also again mention that Connor's 18. Like, yeah. Just to like so on really drive that home. And, yeah. But what makes it extra weird to me is that, so Vincent Carthizer looks younger. Than he does look pretty here. young. And Charisma Carpenter is playing is much a 21 year old, but she looks a lot older than 21. So no, I agree. the visual like dissonance here is also adding to the creep factor it is. where, especially because he's also playing Connor in a vulnerable moment, which yes. you're right, does make him seem even younger, makes it seem a little bit more like predatory, like yeah. seducing a child. It did. You're <laughs> right. It, the sum of all of this was, it was even worse than it had to be. Yeah. Ugh. I hate that they made us see it too. You know, the show's know, so proud why, of why itself that they can show sex screen? on the screen now that they had to make it happen on camera. I really could have done with just an implied could have just told us after the fact it would have been just as plausible yeah okay as in not <laughs> well well we'll talk more about this i'm sure yeah yeah okay if it's not apparent to anybody uh the angel conversation is gonna take a turn for the worse <laughs> i know i'm gonna really try though i try i'm being pretty nice to this episode all things considered i want to be right? constructive like, the rest I just, of it like, was good yeah. Or at least I, good, good-ish. Yeah. I want to be constructive. You're right. If you remove the Cordelia and Connor piece, this is actually a pretty... Uh, it's an episode of Angel that is functioning on a pretty high level. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, going forward, it's going to be impossible to remove that element. So I know. Um, I know. We'll see. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Okay. All right. I'm going to make a concerted effort. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, okay. Well, next time we have Sleeper on Buffy, hmm. and uh, I don't know what we have on Angel. I forgot to look it up. Uh, hold on. I'm right there. Uh, habeas Corpses. All right. That's a pretty great title. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I wish it weren't going to be for an episode that I hate, but that's a great pun. <laughs> that's probably what everybody actually thinks Habeas Corpus is. <laughs> <laughs> habeas Corpses. <laughs> 
Uh, okay. So, yep, we're coming back with that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any pop culture recommendations this time? I have two quick, I have two things and I'll try and make them quick. They're not really recommendations though. Um, okay. So I have mentioned a few times, I think that I've been rewatching six feet under and, um, (laughs) I, I, I really remember this arc and see we're in season four right now where, uh, one of the main characters becomes like a personal security guard, like to the stars in LA. And then he does like a stint on tour with like a pop star. And in my memory, the person who plays the pop star is, um, Blair from Gossip Girl. What's that girl's name? The one who's also in Veronica Mars. Leighton Meester. In my head, it was her. And in reality, it's Michelle Trachtenberg. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, she's not great in it. And it's hard to tell how much of it... I'm sure a lot of it is her fault, but... It also is getting a little bit of of, of strange direction. It's sort of like out of the... It's the most comedic and kind of cartoonish thing in a pretty serious drama. So it's like, it's not really working for me. And her, she just had her last episode, so she's not in it anymore. But it was really cracking me up. I was like, God, I can't believe I forgot it was her. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. There was a Gossip Girl. Right, because she's also on Gossip Girl. Sure. But I just really thought yeah. it was Leighton Meester. Anyway, so that's just been very amusing to me. Um, I'm not going to call this a recommendation, but I promised to talk about spooky things. And yesterday, um, Alex and his brother were telling me about this weird 90s show called Eerie Indiana. Have you ever seen it? Oh, my God. I'd never seen it. And we were, like, walking down the street, and they were just, like, giving me the rundown of every episode they could remember. And I was like, this is completely up my alley, and we have to watch one. So we watched the first episode last night. It was great. I loved it. It's totally my sort of thing. And it was the first episode was directed by Joe Dante, which makes sense because he's the Gremlins and Gremlins 2 guy, but he also did the Burbs and, like, a bunch of of stuff that's, like, just in that, like satirical um horror kind of thing but like but this eerie indiana is a show for children so it was so great though i really liked it the first episode i always think of it as kind of a weird like yes yes it's totally in that era are you afraid of the dark hybrid yeah but like yeah i've only seen like a couple episodes because i think i watched it as a kid obviously and i think i was like yeah yeah fair but it was really (laughs) cute the first episode is like they've moved into this new town and his mom whose side note is dawson's mom from dawson's creek oh and the main character is the boy from (gasps) hocus pocus the brother like the main character brother um so he knows that spooky things are going on in this town and uh (laughs) their next door neighbor like in comes to sell Tupperware to, to his mom and she's like it's called Foreverware <laughs> and basically the thing is that you find out she's been sealing her her kids and herself up in giant Tupperwares for like 40 years because it perfectly preserves them it was great I really liked it anyway I have no idea what the rest of the show if the rest of the show is like as you know gonna tickle me as much or not but I'm definitely gonna watch more of it <laughs> I remember, like, a blonde kid riding his bike. For he has a little blonde friend, like but the main character is, has brown hair. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. hilarious, because I... Yeah, that's, like, one of those... I feel like that's one of those shows lost totally. to, like, 90s history. Well, we watched it on Amazon Prime, so um, if you have a Prime account and you're curious about it. Hmm, I, I think you could at least... <laughs> you would at least appreciate the first episode. Like, do you want to watch 30 of it? Probably not, but, like... That first one was, it was, it was just very amusing. It was so nineties. <laughs> and so like of that era, you're right. Where it was like, goosebumps was huge. Are you afraid the dark was huge. And it's like totally fits in that. Uh, anyway, what about you? Um, <clears throat> okay. No. <laughs> I don't really have anything. Um, also probably yeah. for the sake of time. Um, uh, I definitely <laughs> don't. okay. Well, 
What team are you on? I am team Jonathan this yes, week. Yes, me too. Yeah, I know he he is not perfect, and I don't completely absolve him or forgive him for everything that he's done, but for all the reasons that we laid out, like, rest in peace, man. You were a great character, and I loved everything you brought to the show. Yeah, it's kind of like I'm team Jonathan's eulogy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could write a whole eulogy for him. Yeah. Um, all right, well... Um, okay. On that note, we say goodbye to a beloved character, yeah. and I'll talk to you next time. All right, bye. Once More with Commentary is produced by me, Allie. And me, Ginny. Our theme music is from the album Rockingham by Nerf Herder. And our podcast logo is by Ryan Cooney. You can email us at scoobies at oncemorewithcommentary.com with any feedback, questions, comments that you have, and find us on Twitter and Instagram at omwcpodcast. You can also find our most recent episodes and any show notes at oncemorewithcommentary.com.